0: Well, we've been in a several-week series on Church 101, is what we've called it. What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to worship a church? And what in the world are we doing at church? And there are two reasons we're doing this. One of them is some of you are fairly new to church, and you probably walked in and you didn't have a very good idea of what was going on. And we wanted to make this a place where you can engage and connect thoughtfully and hopefully take care of some of that confusion. Others of you have been at church, uh, in George's case, for 93 years, and uh, you have done these things so often and been part of them so often that you might not actually remember what they're about and what they're for, or maybe, maybe even you never really knew. It's just that thing that we did on Sunday morning. When the grape juice goes around, you drink a teeny tiny amount of it, and then God loves you. There's more to it than that, right? We actually had a sermon on that a few weeks ago. But this morning, we want to talk about what the main thing is that the church does when it gathers together, which is worship. Worship is the main thing that we do when we gather. Now, uh, as I thought about this this week, I thought... You know, worship is something we all know that we're doing it. And sometimes we can even say, well, that thing I just did, or that thing that person over there did, that was worship. But when we stop and think about it and say, well, what is worship really? I think that's actually kind of a hard question. What do you think? I mean, this is question and answer at the moment. I decided I don't want to preach this morning. You guys preach. What's worship? Tell me about it. Praying. Praying is worship. Yes, Absolutely. Praying to God, right? That's a good qualification, right? Like, don't, don't pray to God, not anyone else. That's worship. Diane. Praising God. praising God. Well, now we're just kind of saying worshiping God. So what do we mean by praising God? Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Thanking him for all the things he does for us. Wonderful. He Describing now, God. things that we want, that he takes care of our needs. Yes. Thank him for that. Yes. Giving God thanks, reflecting back to him. These are the good things you've done, and I'm so grateful. Yeah, very good. What else? Glorifying God. Glorifying God. What does that mean? To recognize his status, his holiness, his majesty, his power, his authority. To acknowledge the true things about God in our own hearts, in front of others, to glorify him. Absolutely. That's good. I put you on the spot. You did great. That's my dad, (laughs) by the way. Anyone else? (laughs) Willie. Yeah. God bless you, Willie. Would you come stand in the pulpit for a minute here? Because that's like, is where we want to go, right? We got, yeah, it's when we gather together to worship, there's something significant that's happening there that doesn't happen when we're by ourselves. Sometimes, especially in these days, a lot of people say, well, you know, I I, I love God. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I don't, I don't go to church. And I get that comes from a lot of different places. Sometimes it comes from churches who have hurt people. Uh, Sometimes it comes just from our own cussedness, right, so to speak. It comes just because we don't get along well with people. It might come because it's challenging to be part of a church, but there is no part of scripture that imagines Christians doing it on their own, not a single place. I have mentioned this before, but if you're new, this will be new to you. Uh, There is actually a a, a plugin for your internet browser, for Chrome, that you can install, that whenever you see a Bible, you'll get the Texan version of the Bible. And the reason why the Texan version of the Bible is important is because when you, if we're, we're going to have a grammar lesson right now, which I love because I'm really nerdy, but in English, the second person pronoun is you, right? Is you singular or plural? both, right? Yes, right? That's why in the olden days, people said thou, right? And thee, because that's singular. You is plural. The Texan Bible takes all of the singular second person pronouns and says uh, you, just like that. But all the plural ones, it says y'all, right? The Texans have helped us out in a major way with that. And the reason why this is significant is because almost every second person pronoun in the Bible is you all, is y'all. We read it, don't we? And, you know, we we hear him say, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, and you think me, but what Paul's really saying is all of you. He's saying y'all. I urge you all together. Worship is best done in community. There are a lot of reasons for that. This is great. You guys did a great job. But I'm not done. I'm going to keep going. (laughs) Let's take a look here at Romans chapter 12, because Romans chapter 12 tells us what worship is all about and what worship looks like. Now, before I dig more deeper in on that, let me go back to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, that he is good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will. Let me me paraphrase here in case we're not getting it, because this is written 500 years ago. What he's saying, what the Westminster Standards are saying, is that God didn't say, hey, just worship however you feel. Worship however you feel like you should worship. It actually says, no, God showed us how to worship him. God showed us how to bring him pleasure in our worship. God showed us who to be in order to worship. Did you catch at the beginning of the service, again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And God has given us the means and the understanding to do this. He has revealed what that looks like. Light of all nature shows that there is a God who is worthy of worship, and then God reveals to us how to worship him. Did you know that you were made to worship? Did you know that's what you were made for? And you do it, all of us. We all worship even when we don't realize that we're doing it. We worship based on the things we choose to spend our time on, things we choose to spend our resources on, the things that we choose to follow and pursue in our lives. Human beings are not an end in themselves. The purpose of our life is not simply to exist and have everyone else be glad that we existed, although sometimes we think that might be nice. Actually, what hum- human beings are about is the pursuit of something or other. In, uh, in our own country's founding document, in the Declaration of Independence, do you remember? It says, all human beings are created equal and are endowed with their creator by certain inalienable rights, among which are what? The pursuit of life and of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Actually, excuse me, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's about what we pursue in life. And we all are pursuing something, aren't we? Some of us are pursuing trying to live the best life that we possibly can, to obey all the rules, you know, and and to, uh, to do good things, to do good deeds. There's a lot that's really commendable and good about that. Some of us are pursuing things, and frankly, all of us are probably pursuing some things we ought not to pursue at the same time. Some of us uh, have experienced battles with addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or any number of other things. Do you notice how quickly we become a prisoner to our desires and our delights? We just have to have more and more and more. Uh... I really like new cell phones. And every time, every year when the new cell phone comes out, there's an itch in my heart. I just want that new cell phone. I'm not sure if it helps my scenario or not to tell you that I got a new cell phone this week. But isn't it true there are things in life, there is an itch, and we need to scratch it, and it's the pursuit of something or other, and some of them are obviously good things, and some of them are obviously bad things, but this is part of, it reflects the fact that we are made to worship. We are made to pursue something in our lives, and what will that be? And here, I think, is the most important question. Is that thing we are pursuing really worthy Of our worship. Is it really worthy of our worship? When I buy new cell phones, you know what happens? I go, oh, it's shiny, it's new, and it does it's got a bigger camera, it does all these cool things. And the next day I'm like, but I don't really even use the camera that much. And like now it's got its first scratch, and and it's just not worthy of my worship. It's just not. And sometimes we find that these things we are pursuing, they actually contain our destruction in them, one way or another. Take even the very best things we could pursue. Who thinks it's good to do good deeds? Raise your hands. Yeah, of course it is, right? But what if we make good deeds our worship? What if we make doing good deeds our worship? You ever seen Schindler's List? I'm going to ruin the movie for you. At the end, you know, Schindler uh, tries to save Jews from extermination in the Nazi concentration camps. And at the end, uh, uh, he's gotten all these Jews. He saved all of these Jews, and they're standing on the train tracks somewhere. I don't remember where. And Schindler, you know, he's, he's exhausted his fortune in saving all of these people, bribing officials, paying for them to get out of Germany or wherever it was that they were. And as all of these people he saved are standing and looking at him and thanking him for what he's done, he breaks down and he weeps and he has this gold pin in his pocket and he says, look, two more Jews. And he points to other things that he still has and he still owns. And he says, look, I could have saved more. I could have saved more here. And there's something that's noble about that, isn't there? But there's also something that shows us the destructiveness of thinking that we ought to be the source of good in our world. Because we can't bear that weight, can we? We start to think, if only, you know, if I just work hard enough, everything around me will be right and will be good. And it's not true. We are human beings, not God. Even the best things that we can pursue sometimes contain the seeds of our own uh, own failure, our own destruction, and our own inability. But God's not like that. Paul says if we want to really worship, if we want to finally fulfill the purpose for which God made us, here's the first thing you need to do. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Somebody said we glorify God. Somebody said we we offer thanks for what he has done. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for you, in view of who God is in his nature that he would rescue you, worship worship. I think that this matters, first of all, because if you say worship God in view of what he's done for you, that's a relational thing, isn't it? It's not worship the faraway away God who, who wound up the universe and wandered away. It's not worship the God who has to cater to your every whim, but no, worship the God who, out of who He is, out of His nature, just naturally has given you good things. If we go back through the book of Romans, because if you notice right here, verse twelve, it st- or, I'm sorry, chapter twelve, it starts. Therefore, Paul's saying, in light of the first eleven chapters of Romans, everything I've set up to this point in view of God's mercies. That's what I've been telling you about, how Jesus took your place. He died for you so that you can live forever. He connected you to his death so that you wouldn't carry guilt all of your life long. He has shown you who to be in view of God's mercies. Worship. It's a relational thing, something we do because we've come to know God. And I think there are a couple of things we should take away from this. First of all, we already know some, at least something about how to worship God because we can look at what he's done for us and we can just start saying thank you for crying out loud. And that's a great start on worship. But here's the other thing. If we are living worshipless lives, it's because we don't believe God's done anything for us that's worth praising him for. If we're leading lives where we are not giving thanks to God, if we're leading lives where we are not uh, praising him and saying, look how great he is in our own hearts and to the people around us, it's because we don't actually understand that God has done anything good for us in the first place. I love sports. And uh, back when I first came to the church, it was 2013. And that year, the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl. My football team. I'm really sorry if you're a 49ers fan or something like that. My football team went to the Super Bowl. And and they won. They clobbered the Denver Broncos. We don't talk about the Super Bowl after that, just so you know. (laughs) You don't want to hear anything about it. But the Super Bowl (laughs) against the Denver Broncos is the only one I remember. And we won, and it was amazing. And you know what I did when the game was over? The first thing I did was I called my buddy who's a Denver Broncos fan. I said, I'm really sorry, but that was awesome. And I called all my friends and family who are Seahawks. Oh, that was so great. And I like went on a lap around the block or so. I don't remember everything that I did, but anyone who wanted to hear, or and a lot of people who didn't want to hear, I told them about the good news of the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. It's in our nature to do this. This is one of the reasons why we sing in church. You ever wonder why singing is a big part of our life in the church? It's not because there's something in the Bible that says, make sure you sing at least four songs every time you get together, which is what we aim for, by the way. But it's, it's because singing is actually that response out of our hearts. Singing is an emotional act, isn't it? That's why so many songs are love songs, because singing is about the way we feel in response to what's happening in our lives, to the people that we know, the people that we've met, all these things. In the Bible itself, in, in the book of Exodus, when great things happen, people sang songs. They're written down for us in Scripture. We sing out of the overflow of our hearts because of what God has done for us. Worship is a response of gratitude to God's mercy. Secondly, What we do, how how do we actually worship? They said, well, singing's part of it. You know, prayer's part of it. We talked about all of these different things. But if we were to summarize them all up under one heading, this is what we would say. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So first, I want you to remember that for Paul and the people he was speaking to, they were familiar with the, the Jewish system of animal sacrifice at the temple. And what you, what you would do is, if you sinned, you would take a specific animal, depending on your income, it's the wor- world's first uh, progressive tax system, I suppose, to the temple, and the animal there would be killed. And it's life offered in place of the life of the person who sinned. Or there might be a peace offering. You'd bring an animal, you'd kill the animal, and then you would share a meal in the temple together all of these different sorts of offerings and most of them involves the sacrifice of an animal in one way or another not all of them there were other sacrifices as well but certainly that's what paul has in mind here this picture of the animal being taken to the temple and, and killed there as an offering to God. And if that sounds weird, it is. And I don't have time to get into all the details on it this morning. So you're welcome to follow up with the question. But let's just understand that's what Paul was thinking of. And he says, but you're going to be different. You are going to take your body before the Lord. Just like they took the animal before the Lord in the temple. But instead of then being a dead sacrifice, you will be a living sacrifice. Your whole life will orient around God around his worship and around his praise. Uh, One particular author, Douglas Moo, a scholar who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, says God doesn't just want the worship, he wants the worshiper. Not just what is given, but he wants the giver. And that's what true biblical worship looks like. God wants you. He wants your life, not so he can add it to his collection and put you on a shelf somewhere so that everyone can admire, not so that he can boss you around constantly telling you what to do, but because he loves you and because when we give our lives back to God, we reflect his glory, not just to God, but to each other and to the whole world. Philippians, uh, Book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul talks about, I want you to shine like stars in the universe as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's the same idea here. Reflect God's glory out into all the world. He wants not just the worship, but the worshiper, him or herself. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And here, body is really being used in a figurative sort of way. He doesn't just want your your flesh and your bones and your blood. He wants you, all that you are, to live in obedience to him in constant worship and praise, doing what he calls, doing what he commands, receiving from him love and power and authority and responsibility living every day as a sacrifice. And when we do this, we're holy and pleasing to God. You might remember Cain and Abel. I uh, remember Cain and Abel Genesis chapter 4, very beginning of the Bible. Everything has just been totally messed up. And Cain and Abel go to bring God a sacrifice. And Abel brings a really good sacrifice. And Cain brings a subpar sacrifice. See, The sacrifices that they were bringing, it wasn't just something they went out and got at the store. It came out of their labor. I suppose, like the things we buy at the store, because we get money for our labor and we go and buy our groceries or whatever else it is that we need. But Cain and Abel actually said, God, this is what I have been working on, and it belongs to you. This is what I have spent my life on, and it belongs to you. And Abel gave the best stuff that he could find. He says, You, the best parts of my life. Are yours. I would give you everything except you gave it to me to live so I could eat and I could drink and I could have shelter. I know you want me to keep some of this, but I'm going to give you the best back so that you'll know that my life is really about you. And Cain brought his offering. And it, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what was wrong with it. But it seems that something was wrong in Cain's heart when he brought it. Instead of saying, I'm going to give God the best of what I am because I want to live my life as a living sacrifice before him... Cain was thinking more along the lines of, "Okay, God made me do this, so I'll give Him something, I guess." And so God accepts Abel and his sacrifice. And to Cain, He says, "Yeah, this wasn't your best work." And I have to tell. And then Cain got angry. Right here, I'm bringing you something, and you're getting all mad that I brought you something. And God says, "You need to watch out because this entire experience is revealing something in your heart. It's revealing that sin." in the words of the Bible itself, is crouching at the door and it desires to have mastery over you and you must not let it. And the next thing Cain does is he kills his brother. Isn't it amazing to think that our attitude in worship actually impacts the way we treat the people around us for good and for bad? Worship is a response of gratitude to God's mercy. It's the offering of our whole life as a continuous living sacrifice. But here's one of the most exciting things. Worship transforms us from one degree of glory into another, into a greater degree of glory, I should be clear. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That phrase, true and proper, translates a Greek word, logikos, which has a sense of your rational or your reasonable service. And let's see, I wrote this down here. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says uh, this word, if we mean reasonable by it, then it means the offering of ourselves to God is seen as the only sensible, logical, and appropriate response to him in view of his self-giving mercy. It's your duty. Look at what God has done. If you want to be a good person, worship him. There's truth to that, but there's more. If rational, if this other sort of nuance to the word is correct, then it's the worship offered by mind and heart spiritual as opposed to ceremonial, an act of intelligent or maybe purposeful worship in which our minds are fully engaged. This is presaged in some ways by the Stoics, by a man named Epictetus, which is a super cool name, who lived almost 2,000 years ago, a Greek philosopher. He said this, If then I was a nightingale, I would... Do Nightingale things. I'm going to paraphrase a bit. If I were a swan, I would do swanish things. But now I am a logycos creature, a rational creature, and I ought to praise God. This is my work. I do it. Nor will I desert this post so long as I am allowed to keep it. And I exhort you to join in this same song. This man was not a Christian, but he touches on something deeply, deeply true. It belongs to our nature to worship, so do it. Give it from your mind and your heart, your logikos service to God. Then he says this. This is what happens when we worship. Do not, I'm back to Romans, by the way, this isn't Epictetus anymore. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is that surprising? Worship results in a renewed mind that transforms us so that we will be able to say, that is what God loves. That is where God is calling. That is what God is doing. Let me explain to you just a little bit of how this works. I have to go. It's one of my favorite Bible passages, but I can never get all of these words in order. So I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 4. If I can remember my reference. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. How do, we ch- how do our minds get transformed? Well, in worship, we're turning our minds to the Lord, aren't we? We're not just singing any old lyrics. As a matter of fact, you, you may have picked up on the fact that some hymns, not very good. Not just because the music isn't that great, or the music actually might be great, but because what they're trying to communicate sometimes is not very true of God, or just not very insightful about God. See, the best hymns, this is one of the reasons why Hark the Herald Angels Sing. is one of my very favorite Christmas carols because it is full of wonderful reflections about God that are good and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and they transform my mind as I sing them so that I am transformed as a person. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And all these great truths of the Christian faith. Veiled in flesh. this one rings out veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Remember he's not just he's a baby and he's more in the manger. Hail the incarnate deity And the music helps us in all of that too, doesn't it? Think about these, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. These are all Charles Wesley songs this morning for some reason or other. My great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. The triumphs of his grace. Assist me to proclaim your glories, God. Another line from that particular song. Our worship turns our minds and our hearts to the things that are true and noble and right and pure. Because nothing is truer or more noble or more right or more pure or more lovely than the one true God who made it all and is the source of everything good. James chapter 1, I'm going to finish with this. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing is from God. And we start to soak our minds and our hearts and that sort of knowledge, we start to worship. And as we start to worship, our minds and our hearts are renewed. And as our minds and our hearts are renewed, suddenly we become spiritual people. And not in a just random sort of way. Sometimes people wander around and say, I'm, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm a, I'm very spiritual. And I don't want to knock that. I I, I want to be respectful about all of that. But I think we need to unpack what that actually means. There's a great meme. Uh, I don't have it with me. But it's somebody saying, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And they say, well, Satan's a spirit. So make up your mind. It's not enough just to say I'm a spiritual person. What are you worshiping? And is it worthy of your worship? Every good and perfect gift comes from the one true God, who alone is worthy of worship. And that worship transforms us from one degree of glory to another. It makes us the people we've always wanted to be as individuals and as a church